Let us also turn then to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, looking at the fourth message out of the seven to the churches in Asia Minor, Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18, and we will read to the end of chapter 2. Let us once again give our attention to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual morality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who ever comes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Father, reading from God's word, may our God himself add his blessing to it. Dear brothers and sisters, Thyatira, the city of Thyatira, was the least significant of the seven uh, churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, seven churches in the cities of Asia Minor. And yet, Jesus' prophetic message to this particular church is the longest of the seven. The least significant city receives the longest message. And you maybe have heard... Uh, Preachers talk about this from the pulpit or maybe in a Bible study or in a book. You've, you've learned this before. Often in the Bible, there is a kind of structure um, in which things being discussed, like let's say here, the seven letters to the churches, the seven messages, such that what is in the center is central, is a kind of a, a key to understanding the rest of the messages. What is placed in the center is often of, of importance. This is often very helpful when reading the Psalms. Often what's central in the Psalm is in the center of a particular Psalm, for example. And so the least significant city, the most obscure one to us, receives the longest message and is placed in the center. And even this small detail reveals to us something about our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not despise the day of small things. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And what Jesus, especially in a very direct way, 
tells this church in Thyatira is that his church must always reflect his purity, just as he is pure. So his church is called to reflect his purity. And as is Jesus' custom in these letters, these prophetic messages to the churches, at the very beginning of every message, uh, Jesus gives each church a revelation, a reminder of who he is. And that's very fitting and appropriate if you think of the great prophecy in Jeremiah, quoted then later in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. The greatest blessing of the new covenant is that from the least to the greatest, God's people shall know God. There's nothing greater than to, to know God. And so Jesus reveals here a particular part of his identity and his work to us. These descriptions are always tailored to the specific need of every church, revealing truths about his identity, who he is, and, and his work, what he has done, in a way that each church needs to hear these particular things. And Jesus opens up, of course, for us these windows into his identity, into, into his work, <clears throat> because if we knew him deeply, knew who he is in a more profound way, and, and knew his work, the depths of his love and his sacrifice for us, then we would, from the heart, joyfully obey his, his call to holiness. And so Jesus describes himself to the church in Thyatira as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And it's not hard to understand uh, what these words mean. In the Gospel of John, by the same human author as the book of Revelation, in John chapter 5, uh, we, we read in verses uh, 17 and 18, when Jesus calls God his own Father, Jesus says, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And then John 5, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. To say that God is Jesus' Father in this unique way means Jesus is equal with the Father, with God. When Jesus says, these things says the Son of God, this is a, a claim of divinity, a statement that Jesus is fully God, as divine as the Father, of the same substance, the same nature as the Father. And it's important for Jesus to remind the church in Thyatira of this, that he is the true Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, because the church in Thyatira would have been everywhere bombarded with messages that someone else was the Son of God. Someone else deserves uh, worship. To be more specific, there were two such claims in Thyatira, especially that people would have been exposed to. And the first of them was a deity that was worshipped um, locally, Apollo Terimnaeus, the god Apollo, a sun god, and Apollo was the patron deity of many local trade guilds, uh, including uh, those who traded in bronze. Bronze, fine brass, will feature in in this message as Jesus says he has feet like fine brass. Apollo Terimnaeus was the patron deity also of 
those who traded in purple dye. And you may remember from the book of, of Acts, Acts 16, Lydia was a trader, a seller of purple cloth, and she was converted, came to faith in Jesus in Philippi. So in the city of, of Thyatira, Apollo Terminaeus was, was called a, a son of Zeus, son of the god Zeus, and the divine emperor, Emperor Augustus, and others after him, also likewise were, were treated as son of God. The emperor was seen as a kind of earthly manifestation of Apollo. And in fact, uh, you may research this online, there are uh, coins uh, from Thyatira on which the god Apollo, pagan god Apollo, and the emperor are together represented as sons of Zeus, sons of God. This would have been the message everywhere in the city of Thyatira, that they deserve your worship, your adoration, and that if you enjoy any kind of prosperity, you have them to thank for it. The many gods, Apollo particularly, and and the emperor who provides for your well-being. But Jesus says, he is the son of God, and no one else. We must worship him alone and depend on him alone for our well-being, including our economic well-being, just as the church in Thyatira had to. And it's also not difficult immediately to understand when Jesus says that he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass, like burnished bronze. Maybe it says in some of your translations that with his bright burning eyes, Jesus punishes his enemies and purifies his church, purifies what is impure with the, the fire of his gaze and with his feet like fine brass. Well, in the ancient world, when you would have primarily traveled on foot in sandals and your feet got dusty and dirty, Jesus says his feet are bright and pure and dazzling. The very foundation of his, his being is so pure. He's pure through and through. But this description, though immediately accessible and easy to understand if we have any background in scripture actually has deep roots in the Old Testament. And we would do well to, to trace those roots because we get then a fuller picture of who Jesus is. And we see him then as divine judge, savior, and, and warrior in those terms, son of God with bright burning eyes and feet like fine, fine brass. And from Psalm 2, uh, we see that when Jesus calls himself the son of God, uh, he wants us to understand that he is the divine judge, the judge of the universe who searches the hearts and minds of every human being. And we know we are right to look to Psalm 2 for our understanding of what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, because at the end of the message to Thyatira, Jesus quotes from Psalm 2 those words that are so helpfully indented in the New King James, showing us that it's a quote and a poetic quote, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. That's a quote from Psalm 2. It speaks of Jesus' authority. And in, in Psalm 2, Jesus' authority is authority over the nations to judge and punish. This may be surprising to us if we're used to thinking of Jesus only as meek and mild, which he most certainly is meek and mild. But Jesus has authority over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron 
and dash them to pieces like, like pottery. And his authority is tied, as you recall, in reading Psalm 2, to this pronouncement of the Father to the Son. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And then immediate, immediately the Father goes on to say, Ask of me and I shall give you the nations, the ends of the earth, as, as your inheritance. Jesus, the Son of God, has authority over all the nations, authority to, to punish and judge, judge the kings of the earth who have rebelled against him. So Jesus is the judge of the universe as the Son of God. And yet he's also the judge who is the gracious Savior of his people. Now, this is already indicated in Psalm 2 in the words, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Of course, it's a, it's poetic speech, it's a metaphor. Kiss the Son that is welcome him by faith. And certainly during Jesus' days on earth, his, his friends, those who trusted in him, this would have been common in Jewish custom, would have indeed greeted him with a kiss. Judas' kiss of betrayal was not a holy kiss. But to kiss is to greet someone, to welcome them, to embrace them. Because only in Christ do you have forgiveness. Only in him does God's wrath become turned away from you. But next to Psalm 2, in the Old Testament, Jesus, as the Son of God and Savior, appears also in the book of Daniel. And we'll look at a few places, a couple of places in Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. In uh, the fiery furnace, we, we read of um, the three friends of Daniel being rescued, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they are left unharmed in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, verse 24, we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus says, He is the Son of God. The Son of God, in Daniel 3, rescued his people, the three friends of Daniel, from a fiery trial. And this, of course, prefigures for us what the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would do for us and rescue us from the fire of God's judgment that you and I deserve because the fiery judgment of God fell on him. He took hellish punishment, hellish suffering, the suffering of hell on himself. And therefore, when he says he's the Son of God, yes, he's judged, but he's also the deliverer of all who trust in him. And this would have been great comfort to the people in Thyatira as when you resist the pressure to participate in idolatry, you would most certainly deal at least with ostracism and often quite worse. Jesus says, remember, I am the Son of God and I can deliver you, deliver you and deliver us even in this present life, spiritually. No, not always from every physical trial, Jesus does not always rescue his people from those what, what their persecutors want to inflict on them by his Holy Spirit. He keeps our souls secure. 
and rescues us from all eternity, allows us to overcome, even when overcoming looks like martyrdom. And then while we are in Daniel, one other place where the image of the bright burning eyes and the bronze feet uh, comes from Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10, verses 6 and 16, we read about a mysterious figure, this time called the Son of Man, who comes to Daniel. One, uh, there comes a, a certain man clothed in linen, and Daniel 10, 6, Daniel says, His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And a little little later he is described again as one of the sons of men. This mysterious figure is the same one who was with, with Daniel's friends, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, because the description is the same as, as that of Jesus. And just as Jesus is described in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 13, is the Son of Man, here in chapter 2, as the Son of God. So we do understand that even in Daniel, this mysterious figure, Son of Man and Son of God, is a prefigurement before the incarnation of Jesus, of Jesus the Messiah, and that Son of Man, of bright, burning purity, came to tell Daniel that he is fighting kings who are the enemies of God's people. That's what Jesus, in the book of Revelation, tells his people as well. He will, he will fight his enemies. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, brothers and sisters, this appearance to Daniel tells a very important truth. It tells you and me a very important truth. Jesus is pure from his feet up, pure through and through. And as his bright burning gaze is upon the church, he searches our minds and hearts, searches out the impurities in us and in our communal life together as a congregation, as a church, and he's calling us to, to purity and repentance. So Jesus, Son of God, with bright burning eyes and feet like fine brass, is the divine judge and savior and divine warrior. And it would have been great encouragement for the church in Thyatira to to know that Jesus' bright burning eyes see, see the good in them, that Jesus knows their works, verse 19, their love, service, faith, and their patience, that is their perseverance, their, their patient endurance. And Jesus says he sees that their later works, their last works, are more than the first. And it's clear from the rest of the book of Revelation that when these things are grouped together, works and love and service. These are works of witness, works that have to do with living in a consistent way, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ with your words and with your actions. And and the church in Thyatira, many of them were excelling. They were the opposite. If you, if you recall, the opposite of what was going on in the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, in the beginning of, of chapter 2, Jesus says, in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And to Thyatira, he says, I see you with bright burning eyes, and you have grown. 
You are doing now better than you were a while ago. Your works have grown, and brothers and sisters, whatever your background in the faith, whatever your distant or more recent past, take heart in this. Because even if you think, I have not grown, I have shrunk, then at the very least, this means even for you, growth is possible. Jesus does not put obstacles in your way to grow in the faith. Do you desire to grow? Do you, do you want Jesus to say this of you, of this congregation? I see you, and I see that you have grown. Then pray for it. Don't wait uh, for the inspiration to strike, so to speak. Put every effort, and however imperfect those efforts would be, to grow in grace. Praying when you don't feel like praying. Opening up the scriptures when you don't feel like it. Calling calling for God's help to help you repent when you know that something is sinful in your life and yet you don't quite feel it. And however however weak and imperfect all those efforts will be, God will bless them. God will will work through them and and he delights to respond to those prayers. He says to the church in Thyatira, I see you, and I see that that you've grown. But while Jesus takes one verse to praise the church, he takes four verses to rebuke them. Their witness was compromised, and as he calls his church to purity, he doesn't want just the majority of the church to have a pure witness. He wants every single one of them to be a pure witness for him, delighting in him, trusting in his salvation, and then walking by faith. And the problem in Thyatira, verses 20 to 23, the problem in Thyatira was that the church was too tolerant, was too permissive. They weren't reflecting Christ's purity. Let me read those verses for us again. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, apparently, those whom Jesus had tasked with the purity of the church, the elders, were too naive to recognize that a new Jezebel uh, in their midst was working the same mischief as the original Jezebel in the Old Testament uh, in First Kings um, chapter 16, uh, we, we read of the original Jezebel, an original that is not worthy of imitation, um, verses uh, 30 and 31. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And in Second Kings 9, there is talk of the harlotries, the spiritual adultery of, of that Jezebel. Now, the old Jezebel 
led many into Baal worship and therefore into spiritual adultery. This Jezebel in Thyatira even went a step further, justifying sexual sin, sexual morality, that is, any sexual relations outside of marriage, outside of a marriage of one man and one woman. The desire for sexual sin is already in the sinful human heart. But in the Roman world, especially, there was a permissive attitude towards the men, and there was a social pressure upon the men to participate in the banquet, uh, banquets of the various trade guilds, uh, as you've probably heard of, of them in uh, previous sermons in this series, where on occasion we know from history there would be prostitutes brought in and, and people could uh, engage in sexual morality with them. And if you stay away from those banquets where there was idolatry and sexual morality happening, you stick out like a sore thumb. You, you're not acknowledging the patron deity who knows whether you can remain a member of those trade guilds, whether you can continue working in the city. So there was great social pressure. And Jezebel, the Jezebel in Thyatira, must have said, conveniently, I am a prophetess. That is, God has revealed to me Christians don't need to suffer economic loss or exclusion. And then claiming, of course, that her teaching is from God, you understand how little she would have thought of basic Bible study, of basic following the teaching of the apostles. She would have said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all for those simple people. They can follow those written things that the apostles have taught. I'm a prophetess. I have a direct connection to God. Listen to me. And when Jesus says he gave her opportunity to repent and she did not repent, that likely means that the elders would have tried to stop her, but she was able to talk her way out of it. And they decided to let her be, let her continue. And that failure to discipline her, to stop her, is a failure to love Jezebel and those who were following her. Notice that what is Jesus' greatest desire that he repeats over and over for Jezebel and for those who were following her ways? Is it, can't wait to punish them? How oh, he will if they don't repent. But no, it's unless they repent. I gave her time to repent and she didn't repent. Jesus' heart, Jesus' will for her is that she would repent. Once people in the church in Thyatira to care for her soul, call her to repentance. Or else, if she does not can, can repent, to exclude from their fellowship altogether. It's as if Jesus was telling the church in Thyatira, Dear ones, my dear ones, you must learn a spiritual lesson from what you know in everyday life. You know at least the metal workers, the dealers in fine brass, must surely know how you need purifying fire to produce fine brass, to burn up the impurities so that the brass does shine and becomes fine brass, becomes burnished bronze. You need not be afraid of applying a purifying fire of discipline to the church. Now, it must be a purifying fire and applied in love with a desire to see repentance on the part of the offenders. But don't be afraid of of applying it. And Jesus says if they, if they don't do it, he will intervene as he did in Thyatira 
intervened with his word and through his providential ordering of, of events, he intervenes in churches even today to, to purify them. And it may surprise us, again, if we're only used to thinking of one side of Jesus, of the meek and mild, which he again certainly is, may surprise us how strongly Jesus speaks that he says he will judge Jezebel and all those who follow her ways. But what Jesus is doing here teaches us, of course, that the church must reflect his character and the character of his heavenly kingdom. Now remember, the church of Jesus Christ is the only place, the only institution, the only body that represents an outpost of the new creation in this world. The kingdom of God is the bride of Christ, and the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven, and nothing impure will will ever enter the new Jerusalem. There will be no idolatry in the new Jerusalem, just as no suffering, so also nothing impure will ever enter it. And that is why nothing impure being advanced in the church can be tolerated. The bride of Christ are are his his saints. The Jerus- Jerusalem from above is, is his bride, and nothing that opposes Jesus, nothing that opposes his name, opposes directly his will, can be tolerated and allowed to flourish in the church. When Jesus intervenes in the church in Thyatira, again, it is not out of a a desire simply to punish and judge, but it's also not just to purify Thyatira, but to be a lesson for the other churches. Then all the churches will know, Jesus says, that he searches minds and hearts. That's probably not how a church wants to be known among other churches. If Thyatira doesn't repent, then that will be their role for the other congregations. They will be a kind of object lesson. Um, lesson for how Jesus deals with disobedience. The words of, of Jesus uh, here echo his, his words in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, verse 10. Let me read for us. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah's day, God was threatening national exile for national disobedience. Here, there is so much more at stake that those who don't turn and don't repent will miss out on sharing in Jesus' end times authority, Jesus' rule and judgment over the nations. Verse 26, those who those who overcome and keep his works to the end. To them he will give the power over the nations. And the implication is, at that time, when the nations are judged, there will be only two groups of people. Those who are with Christ, who have trusted in him, for whom he was the Savior from the fiery furnace, and the Lord who calls us to holiness, and those who are judged. There is no third option. Jesus says to those in Thyatira, I want you to be in the first group, to to persevere, to overcome, to keep his works, to keep bearing witness to him in a consistent way. Jesus wanted Jezebel to repent. We've, we've seen that. But but if they don't, um, at least they uh, they they wouldn't at the time of uh, of Jesus writing the book of Revelation. But if they did, 
They did, rather. They would receive something else, not just authority with Jesus to judge, but he says, to him who overcomes, I will give the morning star. If you were here last Sunday evening, you may remember the oracles of uh, the prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 22 and following. Uh, Balaam was uh, a pagan prophet who specialized in cursing people. Curious um, specialization, but he could not curse the people of God, but he could give wicked advice. Um, in his fourth and final oracle, uh, Balaam saw a vision. Numbers 24, verse 17. Balaam saw a vision of a star rising out of Jacob. That is to say, a scepter, a ruler rising out of Jacob. And this star, this scepter, this ruler would crush Moab and all of God's people. And at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus is the morning star, whom even pagan Balaam couldn't help but see, a star arising out of Jacob who would crush all of God's enemies. Jesus is the morning star, and Jesus says to all those who, who overcome, he will give himself, himself as our true spiritual nourishment, he will give us fellowship with himself, closeness with himself, now already in this present life as by faith, you seek to follow him, and then especially in, in glory, the fullness of fellowship with him, when you see him, behold him face to face in his presence forever, in his pure fullness of his kingdom, where nothing impure will ever enter. Now, is, is that you, persevering by faith, even now, not just saying the right things about Jesus, but Confessing him with your life and, and striving for, for purity in, in your sphere of responsibility so that, so that both you yourself and others can experience that fullness of blessing of being, being with Christ. Let us be individually as families, as, as a congregation, those tasked with ruling for the good of God's people in the church as elders and those who serve in various capacities. Let us all then follow our Savior, trust in Him, in His salvation alone, in His propitiation for our sins, and let us, let us strive to reflect His purity. Amen.